Hello, everyone, and welcome to Consumer Watchdog's Rage for Justice Report. I'm your host, Carmen Balber, Executive Director of Consumer Watchdog. Um, and if you're a regular listener, you know that this podcast is our forum for just having a conversation about the events of the day um, and the issues uh, we are exposing, confronting, and changing. Uh, but it rarely happens that all three are happening at the same time, expose, confront, and change. Uh, this is definitely one of those times. It's a time of incredible uh, rage and sorrow, but also huge potential and power um, with so many people in the streets and so much uh, rapid change uh, moving forward. So um, while while uh, the country is in the streets, we want to um, use the podcast, use this platform to amplify those voices um, and spotlight one of the ways that um, everything we're discussing right now uh, and systemic racism manifests um, in the healthcare system. So uh, with me, our, our guest today is really a powerhouse advocate um, and attorney on these issues whose work I've known for many years now, but I only recently had the pleasure of meeting, um, Dr. Michelle Goodwin. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. It is a pleasure to be on the podcast with you today and to expose, confront, and also to think about and uh, move towards change. Absolutely. So glad to, so glad to have you. So um, Michelle is a, a law professor at UC Irvine um, and uh, the founder and director of the Reproductive Justice Initiative which is focused on um, women's legal and, and human rights. Um, and we met her um, uh, because she's really on the front lines of the discussion of racism as a public health crisis, and especially, especially uh, a crisis for women. Um, so we could, I, I, I really couldn't think of a better person to have on right now uh, to help shine a spotlight on these issues because um, Black Lives Matter is a lesson that the police have to learn most definitely, but is also one that our healthcare system has to learn. Um, so maybe, maybe Michelle, let's just start there. Um, the healthcare is one of the ways that uh, racism manifests itself that isn't really ever captured on video. Um, that's right. That that's absolutely right. And and let's be clear that what we see captured on video, uh, though it's become quite helpful, it can also become a distressing pornography of pain as well. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that uh, in order to move forward agendas about how do we change and how do we expose, we have to be exposed so much to this kind of brutality that people of color experience. Very recently, it's been with the uh, horrific and tragic uh, killing of George Floyd, which was really a modern day lynching. And I don't use that term lightly. Um, my maternal grandparents were from Mississippi. Um, one of my grandmother's younger brothers was actually cut down, put in a trunk of a car and driven north so as never to return to Mississippi again. So, so something that is a lynching is quite profound, both in terms of our nation's history and the practice of it. And what we saw in the death of George Floyd, sadly, that kind of um, the knee on the neck for almost nine minutes and the uh, obtuseness with it, it really, you know, was symbolic of the kind of 19. 
30s, 40s postcards that showed the the sort of nonchalance of people standing around and sometimes the glee of people at these lynchings. And so that's what we did see there. But I think, you know, this history of uh, racism and healthcare dates back so long, whether we're thinking about Dr. Marion Sims and the epiphanies that he wrote about in his memoir, uh, these epiphanies where he had to round up the black women that he kept enslaved at his home in the back of his house in a shack and would rouse them in the middle of the night so that he could literally puncture their bodies that he could stab into their bodies, that he would cut open their abdomens and inside of their most the most sensitive parts of their bodies. Uh, and then, you know, on his whim, because he's having an epiphany, stitch, suture, do whatever, and then deny them any kind of pain relief, uh, any kind of anesthesia, because he believed that they really didn't feel pain. And one supposes that even if he believed that they did feel pain, they were undeserving of that pain being relieved while he experimented and played with their bodies. He became known as the father of gynecology in New York City. They honored him with a statue in Central Park, you know, and in Central Park, there's just not anybody who gets a statue. And so you think about the kinds of images that we have held up in the United States um, as being people that we should revere. And very often, sadly, these are people um, who have done such heinous, committed such heinous, uh, torturous acts against people of color. And these are not histories that are just solely African-American histories. These are histories that sadly also involve tragedies against Native Americans um, who were also, who experienced such horrors as well um, within healthcare systems and even contemporarily um, suffer through COVID in ways that are also quite disparate and without the appropriate kinds of resources on reservations uh, to be able to be properly treated in the wake of this disease. And so when you think about the kinds of suffering that we've become familiar with, people of color experiencing, it really should cause us to do a moral wake-up call, a kind of moral check on ourselves, given the kind of normalcy of it. And you can tell stories about this through the lens of uh, Black people in the United States, Indigenous people in the United States. We can tell these stories uh, with regard to Asian Americans in the United States. I mean, look, you know, Angel Island uh, here in California was a quarantine station, right? You know, so when we think about Angel Island, you know, Ellis Island and they're held out with such esteem, but actually there was a dirty side, a kind of, you know, a more pernicious side to those places. And of course we can tell those stories in great visibility in terms of what's happened to Latinx populations. I mean, you just think about what the federal government has put in place in recent years. I mean, children in cages, children being fed frozen burritos, being literally snatched away from their parents' arms and sleeping on cold floors underneath aluminum foil blankets. That's a health story too, right? So it's also important that we link what it is that we see as not just political stories and economic stories, these are health stories and these are mental health stories. What happens to a child after being snatched from his or her mother's arms, denied the opportunity to even hug, let alone touch a sibling, and then being fed food that many people wouldn't necessarily find fit for their domestic animals. That causes 
a, psycholo a psychological trauma. And part of the trauma is that, you know, people would un understand that these are psychological traumas if they happened in their own family. Right. Like, let's say that there were members of Congress and, you know, some foreign leadership, you know, their kids were visiting some country and their kids were taken away and they were put in cages and under aluminum foil blankets, sleeping on concrete floors and unable to contact or be in touch with their siblings. Well, we'd understand that as a trauma. We'd want things to be done right away. We'd want UN resolutions about this, all of these kinds of things. But these things are taken as normal. They become normalized. People become immune to understanding the pain of it, immune to expressing empathy. Sadly, when these kinds of uh, horrors are then placed upon people of color. And, and, and problems like this so frequently get dismissed as um, economic issues instead of recognizing the deeper structural uh, race issues that feed into all of these inequalities. Because like you said, if, you know, the white men who run Congress were experiencing these same things, they'd be addressed quickly. But instead, because it's people of color, uh, it's not their financial situation that allows these injustices to be perpetuated. It's, it's, it's that uh, element of race that uh, leaves such a terrible uh, terrible legacy and terrible hole in our response. That's that's right. And so whether we were to tell the story as a family vacation uh, to Ireland or Paris that goes awry, where children are snatched out of their parents' arms and then treated to what we've done uh, to um, children whose families have worked so hard to try to get to the United States, or if we told it as a story uh, that involved refugee status or immigration. I mean, look, part of the... Part of the uplift of the American immigration story is that no one has to talk about uh, being in cages, being shackled and chained, except black people, right? So, so that people can feel proud of their English origins, you know, their Dutch origins, their German origins, their Irish origins, because they know that those stories don't involve uh, indigenous people who were native to this land, putting them in cages, you know, uh, forcing them to eat, uh, you know, inedible foods. These are not stories where uh, the parents were separated and put someplace else. Uh, these are not stories where they came here and indigenous people put them in jails. It, like those, those are not the origin stories. And so instead the origin stories get to be sweet, amusing, sometimes comical, sometimes involving name changes. They get to be the stories about working so hard and being so industrious and pulling themselves up by bootstraps and all of these kinds of things. And, you know, we could nuance those politics of those stories, but those aren't horror stories, right? But somehow we've become conditioned to the horror stories that people of color um, have experienced in the United States. And it's important, you know, that we understand that as part of those stories and legacies, they don't end there. And the page that so many could learn from are the stories also of resilience and forgiveness by people of color, right? So when you think about it, it's not just the stories that were woe is me, even though so often it's framed in, you know, discourse about race. You hear these stories about the laziness of people of color, um, particularly Latinx people and black people, why don't they just simply work harder and all the rest of this? 
But of course, we know that that, in fact, is just obfuscation. You know, that's a way of trying to distort a story because we also understand that the legacy and histories have been histories of people of color attempting to truly hold up the American Constitution. People who have fought bravely for the flag, even when the flag did not wrap itself around them. People who really wanted the realization of equality to come true. It's embedded in words in our Constitution, but it's been people of color who have fought so hard and white allies to lift up the true meaning of what the Constitution is supposed to hold, right? You know, so we think about with voting rights, right? You know, our Constitution, as we hold it up to other countries as being, you know, we're part of a constitutional democracy where we care about voting, but when you think about it, you know, who are the populations that really fought tooth and nail for voting rights to become real in the United States, suffering under hoses and dogs and incarceration and all of that and under the, the batons and flashlights of police officers, right? Those are the stories of people of color and not doing it just for themselves, but the investiture in these things for the lifting up of everybody else. So on one hand, while telling a story about the endemic nature of institutional racism and, and infrastructural racism, I think it's also important that we give credit to the foremothers and forefathers that are not often uh, depicted on the walls of schools or the walls of Congress, in the halls of Congress, right? These people who really, in many ways, have been intergenerationally invisible but whose works were so important, and, and I must say, not invisible to people of color. I think part of our work here is really to make sure that everybody understands um, that these are true American heroes, the people that we've taken for granted and who are now, you know, long gone from us, but they taught us so much. For all our listeners, let me interject here and let you know that this conversation with Michelle Goodwin was so good that I decided that rather than cutting it off here early, we should break it into two parts. So we continue in the next episode where we delve more deeply into how racism infects the medical and legal systems when people of color are injured and even killed by medical negligence. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Dr. Michelle Goodwin uh, on the Rage for Justice Report. I'm Carmen Balber, your host. Please tune in to part two.